0: back everybody to another episode of the HR revolution or evolution, no matter what way you look at it, the world of work is changing. Uh, And uh, Bobby and I are having conversations with thought leaders and experts in the field, because it is the revolution of HR for this evolution of business here in this post pandemic era. And this is a passion project for him and I, uh, as well as others to really bring forth a lot of information, knowledge experience, and wisdom um, to really help us become better leaders within HR, within the function of HR, or future leaders within the space to really drive that difference uh, in the individual lives of employees at the end of the day, Um, but still being aware of what the business wants and needs at the same time, because at the end of the day, there is no profits without people. However, there's no purpose without profits. So today, uh, Bobby Spaziani is my co-host. How are you doing today, Bobby?
1: Doing good, Kevin. Thanks for uh, for letting me engage in this awesome conversation. That I am really excited. Um, for those who might be listening for the first time, um, you know the HR Revolution podcast started um, when Kevin and I kind of put our heads together here in Western New York just a couple years ago, um, and and really started to to talk HR and the evolution of HR and what it means from you know how an HR professional used to be viewed as sort of a personnel assistant or a paper pusher, and now are you know a part of C-suite conversation. So um, today we're we're extremely excited. I think if you're in the field of people analytics, DE&I, or recruiting, um, you're going to love this one today. So thanks, yes. Kevin.
0: Without further ado, we have S. Winnie, who is a professional consultant when it comes to people analytics, workforce planning, Um, and all the above. And uh, she has been an expert in the space. She has an exciting announcement as well of uh, her next journey, but um, she's here to have a conversation with us um, about people analytics and this push for making more data-driven decisions. Winnie, how are you today?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for the introduction, Kevin.
0: You are so welcome. I know I am very excited uh, for today's discussion, but before we get into that, just so everybody's aware, we do have lives outside of work, and work is not our life. I'd like to ask, what is your favorite movie of all time?
2: Oh, that's a good one. I was prepared for the favorite book question. All right, we'll
0: take. <laughs> what's your favorite book?
2: <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. But no, favorite movie. I think I'm a I'm a, um, a huge Marvels fan, so I'm I'm always into watching whatever is up. So recently, the newest uh, series came up on uh, uh, Disney Plus, the Kamala Khan, which is super exciting because yes. it's a brown superhero. So that's something I'm looking I love that. That was
1: super exciting.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's yeah.
1: awesome. Um, so yeah, so as, as Kevin mentioned, I think sometimes, you know, in, in, as HR professionals, we get the uh, stigma that um, we're working 24-7, but we know that's not the case. <laughs> we, have, we have lights outside. So what is it uh, that you like to do for fun when you get a free minute, when you're able to break away from all the data and all the people analytics?
2: Oh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm an artist, actually. So outside of work, I try to do watercolor paintings, and yeah, it's just a really nice way. I started off with doodling and stuff. And then, of course, when you add some colors to it, it just brings more life into it. But uh, yeah, that's what I do usually the weekends or when we travel. It's just that nice is to paint so some memories. Cool.
0: <laughs> Do you find, like, just making the brush strokes or just in general, that it allows you to almost really take that mental break?
2: Definitely, definitely. And, and also, I, I notice sometimes that I, I choose colors based on my mood. Cool. And it, it really it's it was something that I observed after quite some time, but I was like, yeah, that day wasn't a really good day because it was a beautiful cafe, but I chose a lot of grays and browns. So that was weird. <laughs> yeah, we had a
0: really crappy meeting and I used a lot yeah. of reds and oranges after. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I am a very visual person, so it uh, it translates.
0: That is so cool. That is so cool. Well, I wanted to uh Obviously, the importance of of several things that you said is just uh, finding that mental uh, break. You know, giving yourself that time out. If uh, we pulled up next to you while you were driving to work one day, uh, what song, if you had to listen to one song on repeat in your car, would be playing at that point in time?
2: Yes. Uh, I think my husband might disagree but uh, I really like that song clap along if you feel
0: happy <laughs> that, <laughs> is that is a good song if you're happy <laughs> it was a happy right I think it's yeah happy. it's happy yes, that's yes. a great song I, you can't, I mean, can't not people listen
2: around it. me can get really tired of it but it's just it's just peppy it makes your mood lighter sometimes
0: <laughs> yeah we'll get you pumped up going into yeah. the, to work <laughs> so you found your way into people analytics, right? This is an emerging science. Um, Jack Fitzsens potentially was we're, we're talking about it 30, 40 years ago, um, but it's really a, uh, an up and coming science. You've worked at some pretty incredible places um, and, and some really well-known organizations. How did you just start your journey and find interest in data and people?
2: I think, um, yeah. So my background is actually in engineering. So I saw that. In That's why. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is you wouldn't believe. My first job was actually as a control engineer at a thermal power plant back in India. that was at that time, of course, data analytics wasn't something that was super famous, right? Mm-hmm. But we did use a lot of that in our work. For example, if if one particular machine keeps going off all the time, that means it's re- it needs replacement. Right, it's as simple as that. But we needed to look at the data of how often the shutdown times are, and mm-hmm. is there a pattern there? And like, is there is there too much dust around that place, for example, the environmental factors? So it it's those things that started off my interest in data, where you we had to use data for day to day decision making. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, early on in my career. That's what pushed me into data itself. But I got into H R quite accidentally. <laughs> (laughs) like most people, I think, Mm -hmm. but uh, but basically I after my master's in engineering management, I I was lucky enough to find a role in Tokyo. And uh, at that time, I was I think one of the very first few foreigners who were hired into this quite traditional Japanese company. So the company started expanding internationally into Southeast Asia. So we were looking to expand into Indonesia, Malaysia and uh, Myanmar, Singapore, etc. And at that time, being one of the first few foreigners, they immediately looked at us for help on, okay, do you have any ideas? Do you have any inputs of what we should do? And pretty much that's how I got into HR because initially it was an international expansion project. But of course, when you expand, you need to hire, you need to set up an office, you need to figure out who do you hire, where do you set it up? So there was that initial... um, let's say step into HR really got me intrigued. And I could see at the end of my career there, I mean, at the end of my role there, I think we hired more than 40 plus internationals who were working within our office as well. And it was fantastic to see how their lives changed Mm -hmm. because of the decisions that we were able to make. So that was, Mm -hmm. I think, it was very nice to see the impact that we can make Mm -hmm. in HR. Wow. I think that's great. You
1: know, I mean, and that's that's exactly I think why why Kevin I don't want to speak for you but you know why I think we both got into this field is just the, the ability to change lives,
2: yeah. uh,
1: to bring smiles to faces, to give to give folks opportunities. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that because I, I saw that you also as you kind of broke in and sort of grew up through HR, you you started in sort of that talent acquisition space, recruiting, yeah. sourcing, um, and then you have this shift to people analytics. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Was there a moment? as you were kind yeah. of sourcing talent or recruiting for talent, where you said, you know, let's put some data around this um, yeah. you know, to make sure that we're bringing in the right folks.
2: Definitely. I think the, that that spark really happened while I was working back at Uber. So Uber back in that time, it was scaling super fast. And this is of course way before the pandemic hit us. So there was really not much of a limit to the scaling that was happening at Uber. And it was also pre-IPO for Uber. So there were enough funds and there were not too many questions asked about recruitment. So every year, I think every year we were doubling in size. So when I started, we were, I think, even in the Amsterdam office where I was based, when I started, we were about 1000 people and when I left, it was almost 2500. So (laughs) the office kept doubling in size. The, the, The skills as well, of course, doubled with that, right? So at that time, the opportunity was really ripe to use data within recruitment. And especially when you're scaling that fast, leaders at most tech companies speak the language of data. Mm-hmm. And when I say leaders, I'm talking about the hiring managers that we work with, right, in recruitment. So we, we needed to understand what is their language, how do we get through to them to tell them that, hey, you're looking for a unicorn profile, like we're not going <laughs> to get to this person at all if you want them to start working in three months, Right. So we really needed to figure out how do we translate just saying it's hard to find profile. How do we mm-hmm. translate that into their language to say, okay, look, in Amsterdam, the talent market looks like this. And if we dial down based on skills, let's say SQL, we, it's going to narrow down the funnel a little bit more. And then mm-hmm. you see at the end of the funnel, after all the filters and criterias you put in, you're going to end up with 40 people. So mm-hmm. in that 40 people, how you can't be so choosy. I've already done the filtering for you. Mm -hmm. So that really resonated with a lot of the leaders and it saved us a lot of time because the moment we started putting data and numbers and and we were we were proving to them something that we were just speaking about that really saved everyone a lot of time and got us a lot more Mm buy-in from our leaders as well. And that I think that was like the initial inception stages of recruiting analytics within Uber as well. So there was a lot of, the the Uber, the best thing is if we don't have something, we go out and build it. Mm -hmm. So that that attitude was something that really everyone enjoyed at Uber. So that was something people were open to. Everyone were interested in trying to find out, okay, how can we all use this in our own roles as well? And it really expanded and started scaling within the teams.
1: I I love that from like a a recruitment and sourcing perspective. You know, we always talk about, you know, that, if we could show the business, you know, kind of, Hey, you start with a hundred candidates and then you want this qualification. So now you dwindle down, 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 and exactly. Here's a purple squirrel that, um, you know, we might be able to kind of reach out to, I didn't think showing the business that impact is, is incredible.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, and,
0: and how she put it was, was so perfect though. You have to talk to the hiring managers because that's usually a, a bone of contention between HR and talent acquisition and, and leadership. It's there's always that rub. Um, And a lot of times, I think until you can communicate as to what they determine as success, as you put it, right, um, you don't really know how to communicate that effectively. You can't go in there and say, hey, dummy, uh, that's a unicorn. Those don't really exist because that that is not really the answer that they're looking for. So I love how you showed almost the dwindling of the talent pool as another way to show is like, hey, you started here. And now because of the requirements, we're, we're all the way down here. I have to ask maybe a tertiary question to that is did Uber start to change the requirements that they were putting within these job descriptions because of that?
2: Definitely. I mean, we, we, I mean for example, the, there were some things that we were able to show them that if you give the candidate a chance, for example, then you'll see maybe they are actually fit for the role, even though they don't have, let's say, SQL skills. Right? It's something that you can learn on the job. And once they, start, they were ready to start taking a little more risk with us, because it looked like they were able to trust us a little bit more as mm-hmm. well. So that really helps. And we were also able to break some myths. For example, I, I I, I'm i I'm, I'm really involved in the DEI and I space a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, analytics from that perspective was also important to me. So at that time, hiring managers used to think that it was harder to hire women especially for tech roles and harder not only to find them but there was also a myth that it takes much longer to recruit a woman mm-hmm. right so what we did was we looked at data from prior hires and then to see okay did it actually do that like did, it, did we actually take longer and what was the reason women were actually falling out of the recruiting pipeline as well like is it in the beginning we're not open we're not sourcing enough for women Mm -hmm. or is it actually during the pipeline we're not really having an inclusive process and because of that women tend to fall out of the process so Mm -hmm. these kind of things we were really trying to break the myths that the hiring managers just just have this unconscious bias and we just needed to figure out a way to say that this is not really the truth but well, we, we get where you're coming from as well. Yeah. So that really helped, I think, to, that, to build yeah, I that how relationship. how you
0: put that, break the <laughs> myths. And it, <laughs> yeah. that is what a revolution is, right? It's a revolution yeah, is really indeed. identifying those things that we, we've always known or thought to be true. And there was a number that I had heard uh, four years ago, three and a half years ago now, before I got really interested in all of this, um, that only 22% of businesses use data and science to drive business decisions. And that got me nervous right it's like holy cow i've been riding on this bus all along and the driver is blindfolded looking behind him and not really sure where we're going and here i am just blindly trusting him that we're headed down this path he or she right Um, and i loved your point too about the inclusion aspect of that because time and time again back to the requirements perspective females will read through those requirements more than a male. Uh, if we meet exactly. two of the 12, we're still going to apply where a female needs to meet 100% of them. So it's it's almost uh, uh, maybe that is uh, unintentional uh, 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 as an outcome from um, unknowing, uh, I guess, or, or yeah. putting up too, too high of requirements. But I love what you said because I think DE&I were really where I love the data perspective from a DE&I is we got to see in the United States and, and internationally, um, the companies that did it more as a marketing ploy um, and then the companies that did it uh, really intentionally. Um, and, and you started to see where they would focus. And I, I keep calling on businesses to really be transparent with their data. And here we are now publicly traded organizations are going to have to start disclosing some of this information. Exactly. Yeah. Um, from your perspective, right? If, if, if understanding what you learn, do you think that a lot of these skills can be trained, and that we should be identifying more soft skills within the environments that we are today?
2: I would say it definitely depends on the roles okay. that we are hiring for, because in most uh, in most companies there are some skills, especially in in scaling companies. So right after uh, Uber, I was working in a scale up. Uh, beat which is again a competitor of uber uh, but at the same time it was a very different work culture of course but there because of the fact that they were scaling they couldn't afford to have a bad hire right that a bad hire really costs a lot so in those cases they will be a little more risk averse so i think it's also important to understand what stage of the of the startup cycle or you know the business cycle itself the company is in right now like how much how much will the risk actually cost them mm-hmm. and based on that we can figure out okay can we actually buy some can we actually hire someone who is you know they have they are intermediate level but we we can wait until they can actually skill up or something like that i think there's that nice um three b's right like buy build or borrow mm-hmm. within recruitment so we can always give that advice to the the hiring managers. If you really are short in time, then we just get a consultant for now. We Mm. just buy that talent temporarily. Mm. Um, If we are able to, if we are able to wait, then we are ready to build. That's okay. Um, And again, borrow as well. Like if it's just a temporary help, we'll just Mm. do that for now. Mm. Right. So it really depends on, we need to, that's why we need to have built that trust with the, with the hiring managers and the, Rest of the talent acquisition team because then we can really give them a strategic uh, advice right there then instead of just saying hey I have three profiles they are great mm-hmm. and look at them but rather than that we can really build that strategic standpoint as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's excellent. I I want to I want to stay on your your time with Beat because I know you did something pretty incredible there in you know, kind of co-founding or founding the people analytics department there. We have a lot of guests that, you know, kind of specialize in this space, but, um, you know, not many that have actually been able to build that function from the ground up. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? You know, what was some of the resistance um, and pushback that you might have had? Um, you know, just how did that whole process go?
2: That's a very good question. So I will say that I had an amazing sponsor um, who was the CPO. Uh, and that really helps First step that really helps because no matter how the rest of the organization, no, no matter what their maturity level is when it comes to data or people data, if you have someone up top who is ready to say, hey, this matters and this is going to change, you might not see it today, but this is going to change the way we work very soon. So if somebody from the top really Mm -hmm. nails that down onto the rest of the people, that really makes a huge difference. So that I would definitely say Mm -hmm. sponsorship is number one, for sure. And building the rest of it from ground up, I think I made a lot of mistakes, of course, like in the beginning, I really thought, okay, I'm going to make a few dashboards, and it's all going to be magically solving everything, right? (laughs) That's totally fine. But of course, Uh, slowly I had to understand, okay, the dashboard's not going to work unless and until I teach them how to use it or I spend enough time understanding is this really what they want or do they want some more coaching from me, etc. But what worked as a charm for me after a few months or maybe several months of experimentation was really bonding with the HR business partners. I think they were my biggest allies. And the moment I was able to coach them and educate them on how this data can be useful for them. And then continuously ask them questions as well, like what other data would be useful for you? Or, I mean, forget data. It's if you, I, I think a lot of people within HR find data itself a bit intimidating, right? So we can literally go to the HRVPs and say, what other information will help you mm-hmm. in this area, right? So, And that actually dials it down for them a little bit. And they're open to telling you a little more of their story and the context that they bring. And I do totally believe that data and context are two sides of a coin. And if I bring the data, everyone else within HR has the context most often. So we need to figure out how do we put those two together. And And working
0: closely together. And it's funny because we talk about that quite frequently is, is, without the insights right without the experiences or those wisdom or those that that life journey um, it's just numbers on a page until you make it real and i loved how you framed the question because it's not using data or analytics and those those terms can be daunting right um and for some that that aren't familiar with it what information do you want or wish that you had to be better or make better decisions? What would that be? It's a totally different way to frame that question. I think that they would be more open uh, to sharing with you. I want to go back to something that you said earlier though, because I think from a sponsorship perspective and the other mission critical number two that you talked about, as well as developing with those hiring managers is building trust and establishing credibility. Can you walk me through what you have found to be most successful, whether you're stepping into a new role and now I need to start building this trust? What advice would you give out to the audience on how you build those trusted, and I hate to call it, but a business relationship or a political relationship with that particular division so that you can get to the strategic? And I loved how you put that. Yeah,
2: definitely. Um, A couple of things worked really well for me in I mean, I have, I have, I am a job hopper, is what I uh, would be called in the market. So I, I do get that, but that's also because I learn really fast. So that's why I, I do, uh, I do get bored if I stick around for longer than two point five years in an organization. So I have worked with several kinds of leaders. So I do understand what's the best way to build trust early on, when you start, literally in your onboarding period, right? So it's not you don't have to wait until you hit your, you're done with your onboarding and then you. Actually get to work, but I think it's best to get started from day one. So a couple of things that worked really well for me. First is understand what that person's person really values. So really thinking, okay, uh, well, for example, at Beta, I had to work with the CTO, and the CTO he came from Amazon. So he's seen what great looks like. Like he's seen people analytics team with 30 plus professionals who build like massive things for them, right? And then he came to us, which was a three people team at that time. And what do, what can we do that can really make a difference in his life? Really? So I had to really understand what is your most important thing that you value? Is it time? Is it quality of the information that I provide you? Or is it just, I need to solve a problem. Right. And it doesn't matter how you do right and once you understand where they're coming from in your initial conversations try to gauge that and really ask them very honestly if it's i think a good thing about dutch culture at least is that we need to be very straightforward and that's really rubbed off on me as well so we we can ask them very transparently in the first few conversations what's the most important thing for you and then we can shape our relationship and the way we we interact with them going forward after knowing that is that exact thing so if they value time for example then in order to gain their trust i would do things for them as a priority Mm -hmm. so the moment paul when he was a cto the moment he pings me i will make sure that within four hours he gets the answer for that in the beginning it's really hard it could it could really shake your work-life balance but that's I think really good to set off a good foundation in the first three months. And then after that, you have your people, you have your allies, you can keep moving much more smoothly after that. So that's one thing that always worked. And the second thing that worked is make them believe in the power of data, right? Because a lot of times, not everyone has come from organizations where they have used data and have seen what, what it can do. So. Sometimes I take the pain because the, a lot of times with HRBPs or recruiters, et cetera, a lot of times the support that we need from them is giving us clean data. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that, right? But in order for, that, for them to do that data cleaning work, you need to tell them what would clean data actually result in. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it's really painful to clean the data which has like, just been dumped for a, quite a few months, but that painstaking work will lead you to show them what utopia looks like. Like if everything goes beautifully well and you support me in getting everything done, then this is all what we can do with the data. So that one big painstaking step will help them understand the value and the impact of what they are doing can have.
0: I love that. I, I love too. that because that's the same thing that we talk about. Anybody building a widget, anything like that, is that you need to understand what they're doing and how it impacts others down the line. And I think that is exactly what you just said. And I love that because yeah. um, without it, it, they're not going to prioritize or they don't find it important until you understand what they value, and then that's how you make them sure that you're aligning your priorities with theirs. That's that's fantastic. Thank you.
1: Exactly. Another good takeaway for the young listeners there. Job hopping is a thing of the past. (laughs) Um, You know, make sure you do a good job, get what you need, the organization gets what they need, and then go on to that sort of that next chapter of your life. I think that's incredible. Um, So so as I'm kind of looking through or, you know, kind of thinking about, um, you know, just the people analytics space in general, we, in that space, obviously we're moving from sort of a reactive model to a proactive model. Um, I'm thinking about you know obviously there there are all these you know different organizational challenges and those are going to change depend on the the type of company that you're at or, or the stage as you mentioned of the company, but is there something today universally that you look at as sort of a challenge that in the people analytics space um, we can get ahead of?
2: Um, you mean like a low hanging fruit that any company can try?
1: Exactly. Yes.
2: Yeah, I think off late with what's going on with the great resignation. And I think you can also re- rename it as a great reshuffling because people are moving from one to another and the other two back to this. So definitely there's a lot going on there. I think in that perspective, every company can really find out how to retain their employees because the cost of hiring someone else uh, to replace an existing employee is, is a lot more than, that, than what we estimate it to be. Right? And it doesn't matter whether you're a small company or a new company or a large company, it doesn't matter. But if, if you have to replace your existing employee, it is just gonna take a lot more time and a lot more money. And we just, every company can invest some time in finding out what can I do to retain these people? And there's, there's also the element of, of course, compensation is something everyone looks at. Okay, I can increase the compensation and they would stay. And this is actually important also because because of this whole great re- resignation that happened a lot of companies have started paying a lot for the new hires Ooh. and that really changed cost a huge imbalance between the same role a data analyst now is making 70k in europe but versus someone who's been working in the company so it's a cost that they're paying for being loyal to the company mm-hmm. so that's just and the moment they know it they're gonna leave and they're gonna get 70k in another company so why not make them stay so but that's that's one way you can look at it compensation definitely but at the same time see look identify what else is driving people out of the organization every company very simple use google forms and put in an exit interview form it's it could be that basic right it's okay your 40 people if they are getting to 30 find out why those 10 people left you and then at least keep your 30 that really helps so mm-hmm. i would say that's a it's not necessarily a low hanging fruit everywhere, but it's something everyone can invest the time in.
0: And I yeah. think it's low hanging fruit because of the cost and the impact and the ability that you can, you Indeed. can, and and again, I, Bobby and I do this with, with some is uh, always co-sponsor a cost of turnover for one position with a financial executive, the CFO, just to have that understanding that there is a cost to turnover.
2: Exactly. Uh,
0: and I I think that's where a lot of people are focusing right now because it is a high cost. And and now outside of the expense, um, it also is now having a negative impact on customer service, quality of product. I mean, delays in in timelines and things like that. And last time I checked as a customer, my perspective or my expectations have not changed. Right, And it's almost like um, uh, organizations are betting that the individual customer will be more understanding during times like this. However, I think that Because we the customer are also employees for other employers that we feel like if you're not doing those things for your employees, this is why you're having those challenges. I don't really feel bad for you at this point. And I think we've just seen this entire evolution during the pandemic and it was almost like warp speed. Like, I think what happened in those these two and a half years would have traditionally probably taken 10 maybe. Um, exactly. And here we are in a microcosm where it's like, holy cow, here we are two and a half years later, and everybody just feels like they went in warp speed. And now it's like, where am I? And, exactly. and that's really why I love data. And, and from that perspective is, and you talk about um, uh, taking a data-driven approach to workforce planning and talent search um, and recruiting analytics. And we talk about all these other things. I wanted to go back to your focus on DE&I um, because- <laughs> Again, it was it was talk of the town. It was talk of the world. It was talk of the talk of every other business, right? Some some put the action behind it, but I wanted to understand what data were you looking at to really first to really help maybe design the action or the insights that the leadership team was looking for in order to drive um, future conversations or decision making habits when it came to DEI. Yeah,
2: definitely. I think the my work with the DE&I actually started back in Japan because. As I said, we were hiring internationals to join a very traditional Japanese company. And just for context there, it was a Japanese company where the working language was also Japanese. So even the people who we hired had to learn Japanese, had to do emails Japanese, presentations in Japanese. So that was just a huge culture shock that they needed to just transition out of, right? So that really gave me a good taste of how inclusion is super important to not only not only keep them happy, but also retain them for longer and and make sure that they bring their best in their jobs itself. So that was the initial necessity that we had on why DE&I. And then the real data that, that I could learn and engage with DE&I started off at Uber because Uber it, it has always been some, a, a company that wanted to use data no matter what topic it is. Right, and then we started looking at DEI numbers. It was a variety of things. Of course, we can look at recruiting funnel. So we can. I, I started off in the recruiting analytics space. So we start. We all tried to look at where are the where are the women dropping out. Mm-hmm. And of and I, I think you're from America, so there there's more options of race and ethnicity questions which are allowed. But here in Europe, there's a there's a huge contrast there. So we're not allowed to ask a lot of questions and. Even if it is, it's a, on a voluntary basis, the answer. So the data points are quite minimal, right? So we couldn't do much more than gender diversity to start off with. Uh, and gender diversity even was mostly based on naming. Like there again, like we had to figure out, okay, these we had to run the whole names through to an API to find out male, female. And it was, it was, there was a bit of trial and error even to get to that point, of course. Uh, but in the end, recruiting analytics was a huge success because we were able to identify which exact point in the recruiting funnel we're losing people. And we did a lot of A-B testing to see if we had a more diverse interviewing panel. Does that help in ha- you know, ending up the female hires more towards the end of the process? Not necessarily hire them, but maybe at least they, are they coming more towards the end of the process if we have a more diverse panel? So that kind of A-B testing really helped. We also experimented with um, uh, the text analysis of the job descriptions, because there again, there's a huge bias. I mean, it's it's unconscious, of course, but we put in words that turn off the women and they really don't want to go any further in applications as well. So we use Textio as we were one of the initial uses of Textio at that time. And also we use Gender Checker when it was I mean, before text year was free, of course. And then after that, we had to use gender checker for a bit. But that was really useful to, to even educate some of our hiring managers and say, hey, you're using the word ninja too many times. And ninjas are usually men. So there you have it. It's a very simple concept that we can try to reduce. So that was, I think, the initial time. And then I think um, that uh, apart from the recruiting part, we uh, we had a really nice diversity and inclusion team so we always tried to partner with them to see okay we brought them in now what like we brought in the diversity but now what like what can we do to make sure that they get promoted what does the promotion velocity look like for men and women and uh, does that look different in different countries or different um, category of roles as well because in engineering we already see that women are fewer compared to operations but then Again, in the promotion, velocity as well was lower for engineers. So in the end, at the top level, it's mostly men. So there again, we had to figure out, okay, where are we losing the women? Is it something that we need more education there? Uh, again, there, one of us came with the data. Like, we came with the data and they came with the context. So it was something like that opened up the conversation and then we could uh, make some decisions based on that. Um, let me see. Did I answer your question completely?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was incredible. Um, I think, you know, you said you're kind of looking at it from the moment of entry into an organization, right? Anything from, you know, what is going to attract from a job description standpoint to then
2: yeah.
1: where where's the fall off within the organization? You know, are there certain, um, you know, uh, parts of our employee population that are are only seeing themselves kind of grow to a certain level, um, you know, and, and aren't able to get, you know, uh, to that, you know, kind of director, VP, whatever, you know, nomenclature your, your organization uses. I think that's incredible. Um, so I think, you know, you've had the unique experience, um, Ashwini, of kind of you know being able to kind of grow up within the people analytics space. So um, you know, I'm sure as you started, you know, you had, you know, you went through that kind of period of like resistance, like like how can we measure people data? And then you know, kind of gradually, you know, you got that executive sponsorship, you got the buy-in from the business, you know, based on some of the actions that you're able to do. And now you're at a point where, and I think universally we're at a point where, you know, organizations are kind of catching on that this is this is this is really good. This is key. Um, where do you see with all of the data that we now have at our fingertips from a people standpoint, um, where do you see the evolution of this function going?
2: It's a very good question. I think, like you said, I really like what both of you said about how the pandemic really sped up the process of, uh, you know, this whole work-life balance or remote working, a lot of different things, even within HR, really just shot up very, very quickly. But that's good because I think now the business is starting to trust the people analytics team a lot more because they were clueless during the pandemic. How do I retain my people? Are they happy? And then they came to us to see, okay, what does the engagement score look like? How do we retain them, et cetera. So this really helped in gaining the trust of our leaders and getting that sponsorship and all of that. What I do see is still something that we can do better at in the next five years, hopefully, is gaining the trust of our employees. Right? Because we need their consent at the end of the day to use their data. Mm-hmm. Um, simple things like, of course, we in the beginning, when you sign your job contract, you do have like this big clause which says, we use your data for da, da, da. that's there. But when it comes to things like the engagement survey, for example, it's still anonymous. And it's anonymous for a reason, mm-hmm. because we want very frank answers from them um, and gauge them. But Ideally, because of the fact that it is anonymous, we can't really put a pin on it and say, hey, this is the part of the organization that always needs our help because data needs to be grouped together, et cetera. So we're not always able to act on things because of that. And that's really the lack of trust the employees still have within the organization. So that's the part that we, as not only people analytics professionals but HR generally needs to really work on getting the trust of our employees to say, hey, you can be transparent. You can tell me, hr is shit and put your name under it and i will still be able to co- reach out to you and say what can i do to make this place a better place for you right yeah. so that's the that's the part that we still need a lot more work to do and i think we can do it like we really need to, to use this this beautiful push that the pandemic gave us to help, take that help from the leaders and then figure out how do we build that trust with our employees mm-hmm. keep keep it very transparent Any people analytics project that you're doing, announce it in the all hands and say, hey, thanks for giving us your data. Mm -hmm. It didn't come for free to us. Like We asked you for it and thanks for giving us your data. And this is what we found and this is what we're going to act on. So that will really help in keeping people happy as well.
1: I yeah, it, it's so difficult, right? Like you said, especially with those engagement surveys and employees, you know, kind of still having this, this thought that, you know, I could be retaliated against if I say the wrong exactly. thing, or, but how important that data is, you know, to really be able to take action on if you know exactly the, the specific group that it's coming from or even down to the individual level. It's incredible.
0: And then, and, yeah. I mean, that same goes for those exit interviews. How, tr- how truthful are they within that exit interview? Or are they yeah. just telling you what you they think you want to hear? And, and and I think that goes the same for all leadership. But I love your point is, F. Wendy, I think the the only opportunity that I see um, for the future is just the overall availability of HR. I think sometimes mm-hmm. when I... Uh, I was having my child and I had a lot of questions geared towards paid family leave and what that looked like and how to take advantage of it. My HR team really wasn't there to support me. You know, they were busy um, working through a lot of the other administrative work and they just weren't available. And and I think to your point, in order to rebuild that trust, that availability, especially for those critical life events or key junctures within uh, an individual's uh, lifetime, They need to be there to support and I think an ADP research study suggested that actually if an employee has seven touch points within with HR within one calendar year they have a more favorable view. Um, And I I think you're 100% right I think uh, we are more comfortable with giving up our data for a more personalized and individualized um, uh, approach or or design right and Netflix tells us what we want to watch Amazon tells us what we want to buy. I think we're comfortable with that, Um, but we need to know that it's used uh, to improve or enable my success and it's not there to uh, find ways to increase profits uh, where you continue to pay me less and I'm just a cog in the wheel. I think everybody wants to know is if you're using it to find those win-win scenarios and helping me to enable my success and pinpoint what skill that I need or how I can reskill myself to diversify my skill set so I am more attractive, that's great. it's a really, really exciting time to, to just be in this field um, because we're talking about things that probably had never been talked about really before. Mental health and physical and emotional and financial and career and really looking at the holistic well-being of the employee. And it's probably even light years different, as Winnie, from when you were uh, working at some of these first organizations. And the coolest part of your story that I heard today was that, yes, you got to see the inclusion perspective working for that uh, Tokyo company. But the other thing you got to see is the power of diversity, because you had very, a lot of Japanese, I presume, working within this organization. And now they wanted to grow internationally, and they realized they couldn't on their own. So that required diversity to really understand those subsets of cultures, which I think was one of the most powerful parts of your whole story is that an organization even identified that on their own. And then you can continue to sharpen that blade to show them, yes, this is really important. And this is how we're going to get from here to there. So I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. In closing, Bobby and I typically always ask this question because I'm fascinated in the future of work and the future of business, right? In your estimation, where is the future of work and HR and where are we headed?
2: I think HR is going to be a lot more valued in the future as well. And that's really nice to see. And what I do see also happening is a lot of the skills now that we have in HR are super transferable to other teams as well like now what we're doing with with understanding our internal customers is what customer service was always doing Mm -hmm. Um, now what we're doing with advertising some of our learning programs is what marketing teams were doing always so there's just and when we are building products as a people people analytics person like we build a dashboard or we build a a simple way for them to find their way through data uh, that's a product, and that's and for that we need to understand what they want. That's what product managers were doing all the time, mm-hmm. right? So our jobs are a lot more transferable. So the more and more in the next few years, I think this is going to come out a lot more, and HR is going to be a, a, a sought-after field as well, if I if, if I can say because people from product can come into HR and be a data product manager in people analytics team. Mm-hmm. And they would t- thoroughly enjoy it because the amount of information that is now being collected about our employees in small or big organizations, it's it's good enough for you to make some really good products as well. So I think there's, there's a lot more opportunity there for us to understand our similarities within the company, make a lot of friends outside of HR, mm-hmm. and then that will really help us understand those differences and similarities. And that's definitely where I see. Great, Great insight.
0: Going. And then I think what you're touching on is breaking down the silos because we have a lot of this intelligence within our organization. And I use the word collective intelligence, but yeah. imagine if marketing worked with HR to, to tap into the market, the data analysis that they've been using all these years and flipping exactly. that from an attraction standpoint. You know, it's like, we have all this intelligence, we have all these shared experiences, but we're only... We're all working on different objectives, seemingly working towards the same goal, but sometimes almost against one another or against divisions, which is proving to be counterproductive at the end of the day. I just want to say thank you, Ashwini. This has been a fascinating conversation. I just want to say thank you so much for spending some time with Bobby and I on the HR revolution, um, because these are the types of conversations that get others excited, I think, for change, right, and identifying those, those skills that they have. And maybe maybe HR is not for them, but uh, we hope that it is because of the difference that you can really make on a personal uh, level with these employees um, and and these people at the end of the day, and and really putting the human back in HR. So I just want to say thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing, and and also your time today.
2: Thank you very much, Bobby and Kevin. Super fun talking to both of you. And Cap, uh, thanks for keeping it light, and I hope the viewers find it enjoyable as well.
1: I'm sure they will. Absolutely. Thank you, Ashwani. Appreciate it.